Hello, and welcome to McLean's on the Hill. I'm Cormac McSweeney, Parliament Hill Bureau Chief for City News and Rogers Radio. Mr. Trudeau goes to Washington. On Monday, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau will visit the U.S. Capitol for his first face-to-face meeting with President Donald Trump. We'll start off by speaking with Minister Mark Garneau, who chairs the Cabinet Committee on U.S. Relations. He tells us what priorities the government has heading into this important sit-down. After that, we'll speak with a former Canadian ambassador to the United States, Michael Wilson, about how Trudeau should speak with the Donald. Now, in Donald Trump's polarized America, Canada is seen as an exceptional country, especially when it comes to refugees and immigration. A very hot topic right now. We'll then head to Montreal, where McLean's Ottawa Bureau Chief John Geddes speaks with an expert from Berkeley about Canadian exceptionalism. And finally, we end off our show with McLean's associate editor, Shannon Proudfoot, who joins us to discuss her interview with Rana Ambrose about the struggles of being interim leader of the Conservatives, and then Proudfoot gives us the latest issue of the Ottawa Power Rankings. For your politics, for your power, welcome to The Hill. I'm counting on having a you know, good, working, constructive relationship with the, with, uh, with the president. Um, we're going to talk about all sorts of things we align on, uh, like jobs and economic growth, opportunities for the middle class, uh, the fact that millions of good jobs on both sides of our border uh, depend on the smooth flow of goods and services across that border. But we're also going to, I'm sure, talk about things where we disagree on, and we'll do it in a respectful way. Uh, but Canada will always stay true to the values uh, that have made us this extraordinary country, a place of openness, of respect. That's Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, who is spending his weekend preparing for his first ever face-to-face with U.S. President Donald Trump. On Monday, Trudeau will be flying down to Washington to sit down with Trump at the White House. Now, this is being called the most important meeting that Justin Trudeau will have had since becoming prime minister. There's so much on the line here, especially around the renegotiations of NAFTA, the possibility of a border tax, border security and immigration, thanks to that travel ban that Trump is trying to push through, as well as military spending. There's a lot to talk about. So, What will the priorities be for the government in this first meeting? And will Trump and Trudeau actually get along? To talk more about all of this, I'm joined on the phone now by Transport Minister Mark Garneau, who chairs the key cabinet committee dedicated to Canada-U.S. relations. So, Minister Garneau, when uh, Prime Minister Trudeau and President Trump first meet face-to-face, what is the first message that the Prime Minister is going to give the President? Uh, I believe, and I can't uh, speak for him, but I believe that the first thing that he's going to do is to reaffirm uh, our very long-standing commitment to close cooperation, because uh, uh, we both uh, uh, have uh, an extremely long uh, and close relationship. I would say that we're bound together by our history, our values, uh, our economy, obviously, our shared environment, and I don't think any Two countries in the world are closer to each other than Canada and the United States. I think our Prime Minister will reaffirm that. Uh, I think we both have common objectives to uh, grow our economies and to uh, grow, uh, create jobs for each other. Uh, but because of our close relationship and ongoing collaboration, I think that uh, both nations 
uh, can meet those challenges if we work closely together. So I think it's going to be a message of let's work closely together. We have the best relationship in the world on a number of fronts, and we have mutual concerns over uh, things like security and defense and the environment, and uh, let's uh, continue growing our relationship. There could be huge economic impacts if Donald Trump and his administration follow through on some of the the talk that they've had in regards to border taxes and trade. So what is uh, Trudeau's goal in terms of discussing those matters with President Trump? And how does he make sure that Canada is not impacted uh, through any possible border tax or these renegotiations of NAFTA? Well, I think that uh, uh, he will make the point that Canada and the United States have right now the most successful economic relationship in the world uh, and that it supports millions of jobs on both sides of the border. Uh, He'll make the point that 35 states uh, in the United States uh, count Canada as their number one customer uh, and that of course every day we do over two billion dollars worth of trade that crosses our frontier. Uh, So it's a highly integrated and very, uh, very healthy uh, trade relationship that exists at the moment. As you know, Minister Freeland was uh, was in Washington uh, earlier in the week, and uh, and she did make the point that Canada will oppose uh, any imposition of uh, of new tariffs, whether it's a border adjustment tax or whatever, uh, between Canada and the United States, uh, because uh, we feel that uh, this would be uh, mutually harmful to both Canada and the United States. So that point will be made if necessary. How difficult will that be, though, when the president was elected on an America first platform and a lot of his supporters and the people who put him in the White House want to see America first? I think that uh, when we uh, take the time to explain our highly integrated uh, economy and the realization that for many Americans uh, uh, that uh, the, the strong relationship that exists, economic relationship and trade relationship that already exists between our two countries, uh, we will be able to make the point that uh, we are already um, working in a way that is good for America. It's good for us, but it's also good for the United States. And so it will be our job to make that point. From border security to immigration to these trade and border tax issues, uh, these are very, very serious issues that could have uh, big impacts on our country. So how much is at stake here with this meeting? Well, I think this is going to be a high-level meeting where high-level points uh, will be made rather than going into uh, uh, the finer details. At some point, obviously, we will be uh, talking the finer details, whether it's trade, whether it's uh, immigration policy, whether it is security at our borders, whether it is our very strong uh, defense uh, ties uh, with respect to North America. I'm talking about our our relationship through NORAD and through NATO. Uh, The fine print, if you like, will come uh, later on, but I think this is an important first meeting uh, for the two leaders to get to know each other uh, and to make, uh, to, to, to convey certain high-level messages to each other. So will this set the tone for those talks in the weeks and months ahead on all of these very contentious issues? I believe it will. Uh, I believe it will. I think that personal relations are always very important. Uh, If I draw on my own experience in the nine years I lived in the United States and and worked uh, very closely with NASA, um, I think uh, our U.S. neighbors value that personal relationship very deeply. And I think for Canada, it's always been important to 
uh, create a relationship uh, between the, the leaders of both countries. I think that that uh, is, a, is a, a key first step in setting the tone for, for the relationship that we will have in the years to come. You talk about personal relationships. There are a lot of people who want Trudeau to stand up to Trump to talk tough, especially on issues of uh, this uh, travel ban and immigration. Uh, in terms of the mood, how do you think it will go? Will Trudeau be talking tough to Trump? I think that the mood uh, will be uh, a good one. I think uh, I'm very optimistic that this will be a a very uh, successful first encounter. Our prime minister will make the points that uh, uh, he feels need to be made. uh, And uh, and uh, I'm sure that uh, President Trump will also convey his messages. But I'm I'm feeling very good about this meeting because I think that uh, the effort and the work that has been put into uh, creating uh, links already for the past uh, two months with uh, key players in the U.S. administration uh, between, uh, between uh, uh, people from the prime minister's office and also uh, between ministers and, and their, their opposites in the United States, secretaries uh, uh, for different portfolios. I think that uh, uh, we've begun to build a, a relationship with the whole, if you like, the whole team there, and so I'm confident uh, and that uh, the meeting between the Prime Minister and the President will go very well. Do you think they'll personally get along? Uh, well, I mean, I, you know, uh, that's, uh, I guess there's an element of chemistry there. I'm not going to, to, uh, to guess about that part of it, but I, I have a feeling that it'll probably go very well. If it doesn't go well, if it goes bad, what does that mean for Canada? Well, I'm not going to speculate uh, about uh, how it can go. I'm uh, uh, confident that uh, uh, we're going to build a good relationship uh, with, uh, with not only between the Prime Minister and, and the President, but at all levels, uh, and that the issues that are important to Canada uh, will be well communicated and that we'll find a, a, a good way to, to work together because... So much is at stake, and uh, our links have been so strong for so long. I think that uh, I'm confident that we're going to be able to continue that way. Minister Garno, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time and your thoughts on all of this. My pleasure, Cormac. That was Transport Minister Mark Garneau, who is the chair of the Cabinet Committee on Canada-U.S. Relations. Uh, Just a programming note, I will be heading down to Washington to cover that historic meeting between Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and U.S. President Donald Trump. Make sure on Monday that you check out mcleans.ca or your local city newscast, or you can listen throughout the day for full coverage on our six Rogers radio stations across the country. News 1130 Vancouver, 660 News Calgary, 570 News Kitchener, 680 News Toronto, 1310 News Ottawa, and News 95.7 in Halifax. Still to come on the show, we speak with a former Canadian ambassador to the U.S. about how he thinks Trudeau should handle Trump. We hear from a professor at Berkeley who has written about Canadian exceptionalism when it comes to immigration and refugees. And we hear from interim leader Rana Ambrose about keeping the Conservative Party together. Welcome back to McLean's on the Hill. I'm Cormac McSweeney, Parliament Hill Bureau Chief for City News and Rogers Radio. Coming up on the show, we speak with an expert about Canada's immigration and refugee policies. And we hear from Shannon Proudfoot, who gives us this week's Ottawa Power Rankings 
and tells us about her interview with interim Conservative leader Rana Ambrose. But first... Monday's meeting between Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and U.S. President Donald Trump is an important one, to say the least. Not only will the two leaders be trying to address some of the current policy issues that they both face, but the tone that they set may help shape the future of Canada-U.S. relations. Donald Trump, though, has known to be quite an unpredictable president. At times he's shown a very short temper and... He's been quite vicious to those who land on his bad side. So how should Trudeau handle the Donald? To answer that, I speak with Michael Wilson, a former Canadian ambassador to Canada who, as a minister in the Brian Mulroney government, helped negotiate the North American Free Trade Agreement. As, as Prime Minister Justin Trudeau gets ready to sit down with President Trump in the Oval Office, how do you think he should treat this meeting and uh, how do you think he should be interacting with Donald Trump to make sure everything goes as smoothly as it can? He's got to be businesslike. Uh, we've got uh, a very broad and deep relationship with the United States, uh, our most important trading partner. A lot of people uh, travel to the United States on business, uh, on business and pleasure. Uh, they, uh, for 35 states, they are, uh, uh, we are their number one uh, source of uh, business. So uh, it's, um, it's really important that it be a business-like discussion. I think it is uh, important for the Prime Minister to get the Canadian story across, uh, the importance uh, of the relationship, and the pretty balanced relationship that we have uh, with the country in terms of uh, uh, the trade balance and uh, the importance of energy. It's a, it's a relationship that has been on very strong footing for many, many years, and uh, uh, he's got to leave the sense uh, with the president that uh, uh, this is a good relationship for them, but it's also a good relationship for us and uh, we want to work hard to uh, maintain the, the strength of that relationship. Donald Trump has been known to be a temperamental person. Um, you know, he hung up on the Australian prime minister. How careful do you have to be? How fine of a line do you have to walk? Donald Trump is um, proving to be a president like uh, no other president we've seen or had, had to deal with in living memory uh, uh, he's changing the rules, uh, changing the rules domestically and uh, indirectly. He'll be changing the rules uh, uh, internationally. So he's a difficult person for uh, Mr. Trudeau to predict. Uh, but I don't think that this should be getting into uh, any sort of a, a shouting match or anything like that. I think uh, they should uh, work very hard to keep the the uh, discussion on uh, things that are important to uh, each of us, understand the, uh, the point of view of the other side, and, uh, and try to strengthen that relationship uh, in any way where it's possible. Is the relationship at the top vital, or can the Prime Minister and the President just sort of be civil and businesslike and allow other relationships, like we've seen with ministers heading down to Washington, take over when it comes to the Canada-U.S. relationship? I think the relationship... 
relationship at the top is fundamental. I've seen that uh, in my experience uh, in government, particularly in the relationship that Brian Mulroney had with uh, uh, both uh, Ronald Reagan and uh, uh, George Bush uh, Sr. Uh, that filters down into the relationship that uh, ministers and uh, senior officials can have, and I saw that directly uh, in the relationships that I had with my counterparts down there. So that that's fundamental. It's it's a critical part of the uh, uh, the job that uh, that Prime Minister Trudeau has. Now there may be things that uh, they'll agree on. I'm sure there will be things they will disagree on, uh, but uh, we should try to. Uh, manage these disagreements in a way that they don't um, upset that fundamental relationship at the top. What's it like to be there sitting in a meeting with the president and the prime minister? What is that like to be in that kind of environment? The president and the prime minister are two men. They have uh, uh, both very large, very broad responsibilities as the political leaders of the uh, respective countries. Uh, so you always get a sense that... Uh, uh, this is an idle conversation. Uh, there may be some banter at the beginning or at the end, uh, uh, but for the most part, this is serious stuff that they're talking about, and that is clearly the sense that you get um, being a part of those meetings. Uh, I guess a, a nervous excitement, if you will? I never had the sense of them being a nervous excitement. Uh, uh, the two, the two people, uh, the two uh, leading people, the president, and the prime minister, uh, um, they they understand the positions that they hold. So the, the excitement, the nervousness, or anything like that, that's long gone. I think um, uh, this is a case where they'll be trying to assess the other person. Uh, what's uh, important? What's not important? What can I? Uh, hope to achieve in the relationship uh, over the years. This isn't just a one-shot meeting, but the start of a series of meetings, whether they're bilateral meetings or meetings that take place around the edges of uh, G7 meetings or uh, similar meetings to that. If they hit it off or if things just simply stay civil, what does that mean for the weeks and months ahead in terms of talks about very key issues from security to immigration to trade? Well, I would add another one, and that is uh, border management. Border management is critically important to Canada. It's important to the United States. We saw that uh, the time of 9-11 when traffic stopped between the two countries and really caused significant disruption uh, both uh, in a business sense, but also in the people-to-people the -people relationships that uh, evolved from that. But the, um, uh, uh, the, these meetings are, are meetings that will take place over a significant period of time, and we, uh, we have to uh, have confidence that the two leaders can pick up the phone at any time and talk to each other on a uh, on a person-to-person -person basis. I, I expect that it would be very quickly a uh, uh, Justin to Donald relationship, uh, as I saw it with um, uh, other prime ministers. 
but they have to be able to pick up that phone without having a whole lot of uh, uh, formalities, but to, to allow them uh, both to get to the point of the purpose of the phone call. And that's the importance of this meeting, to get uh, that relationship on a footing that allows that type of dialogue uh, and uh, connection between the two of them. This is the most important connection in the world for Canada, and uh, it's one of the most important for the United States. So having that uh, ease of uh, collaboration, dialogue between them, uh, even though we'll have our differences, uh, is uh, fundamentally important to the success of the relationship. If things go off the rail in this meeting, if, if we see a situation where... Um, let's say President Trump gets upset with uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. What will that mean moving forward? How will that impact our relationship? Uh, it's hard to uh, anticipate uh, what impact that would have. Some of these uh, differences which um, uh, cause a little tension between the two people, uh, uh, that can disappear very quickly. Uh, I think the, the thing that we should be concerned about that uh, a, um, a disagreement or tension that develops at this first meeting, uh, we should be concerned that it doesn't uh, have the opportunity to uh, accelerate based on uh, future differences. That was Michael Wilson, former Canadian ambassador to the U.S., discussing the upcoming meeting between Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and U.S. President Donald Trump. Still to come, we look at Canada's exceptionalism in immigration and refugee policy. We hear from Conservative leader Ronna Ambrose, and Shannon Proudfoot brings us this week's Ottawa Power Rankings. Welcome back to McLean's on the Hill. I'm Cormac McSweeney, Parliament Hill Bureau Chief for City News and Rogers Radio. Still to come on the show, we speak with McLean's associate editor Shannon Proudfoot about her interview with interim conservative leader Ronna Ambrose, and Proudfoot gives us this week's Ottawa Power Rankings. But first, when it comes to political stability and social solidarity, why is Canada so exceptional? That's a question being asked often these days, especially with Justin Trudeau about to visit Donald Trump in Washington. In the era of Trump's polarized America and post-Brexit Britain, Canada's relatively low-drama brand of democracy looks appealing to many. One of the most important thinkers on the nature of Canadian exceptionalism is Professor Irene Bloomrad of the University of California at Berkeley. She was raised in Saskatchewan, but has long lived in the U.S. and remains interested in her home country. She wrote an influential article in 2012 called Understanding Canadian Exceptionalism in Immigration and Pluralism Policy. Her ideas about what makes Canada different, especially when it comes to making room for immigrants and refugees, were debated and discussed in Montreal this weekend at a conference put on by the McGill Institute for the Study of Canada. Professor Bloomrad sat down with McLean's Ottawa Bureau Chief, John Geddes. Before we get into some of the sort of nuances of this, can you just sketch for us, what are the building blocks of this argument? What, what, are the, what, what case can be that Canada is exceptional? 
So Canada is exceptional because we have a very high proportion of immigrants in the population. So about one in five people living in Canada was not born in Canada. And yet, despite that really significant presence of immigrants, Canadian public opinion is generally very happy with the immigration program. Uh, people either want it to stay as it is or even increase the number of immigrants. We can see this in terms of the warm welcome given to Syrian refugees as well. And the other thing that has been really exceptional has been the integration of immigrants and their children has been largely positive. Uh, unlike other countries where there have been um, riots among second generation youth or real uh, persistent poverty in the immigrant uh, generation, Canada has been successful. And so why is this the case? Um, part of it is the fact that Canada has permanent immigration. So it's not temporary workers. People are not coming in just for a few years and then asked to leave. Uh, there's economic selection policies, but not just economic selection because there's also family reunification and humanitarian. But when the immigrants come in, they know that they can stay in Canada for the long term and Canadians realize that they're welcoming potential new citizens to Canada. So that is very different from some of other countries' temporary worker programs. Uh, a second thing that's really important is citizenship in Canada. Citizenship is relatively open. Um, it is relatively, compared to other countries, easy for immigrants to become citizens. And the Canadian government, whether it, regardless of the party that's in power, has encouraged citizenship among immigrants. And so Canada ends up having some of the very highest levels of citizenship among its immigrant population as compared to any other rich, advanced country in the world. And then on top of that, in Canada, uh, unlike any country in Europe, when a child is born in Canadian territory, they are immediately a Canadian citizen. So to the extent to which we see in European countries some intergenerational transfer of foreignness or um, undocumented status. Or so the children and grandchildren of, of, of people who've been living in a European country end up remaining foreigners essentially, they don't become citizens. That, that's not what you mean by intergenerational transfer? Yes. Uh, so um, in most European countries, an immigrant can apply to become a citizen, but in some countries that is an extremely difficult, arduous process after many, many years of residence. Uh, the tests um, might be very, very difficult. And so in a country like Switzerland, you can actually have people who were the grandchildren of immigrants who are still not Swiss citizens. And so you can imagine the implications in terms of political exclusion and um, potential uh, exclusion from all different areas of life. And so Canada is, is like the United States and some other countries in the Western Hemisphere. They allow everybody born in the country to be a citizen. And that's very, very important for inclusion. I mean, at this conference, people have been talking about causes and effects and, and trying to figure out, are, are, we, are we in this advantageous position with respect to immigrants because we had smart, good policy, or is there something inherent in Canadian society or the sort of evolution of Canada that brought us to this advantageous place compared to the U.S. or most European countries? What, what do you think about that? I don't think that we were always smart, um, but there have been policy choices made that have had very positive repercussions, and to Canadians' credit, once those positive repercussions have become visible, the policies have remained. So let's take another uh, case, I think, which has helped Canadian exceptionalism, multicultural policy. This was um, announced in the 1970s. It grew in the 1980s. It has been embraced by all political parties across the political spectrum. And when it started, it was really a 
about trying to include those of European origin. Um, it has become something, uh, even if sometimes people criticize it for being uh, just words and um, symbolic politics, uh, but not really dealing with fundamental problems of, say, discrimination in society. That That is the case. We still have some issues that we need to face. But it has changed the, the language in Canada about who is a full member of society. So it's no longer you must be British or of French-Canadian origin. Um, it allows a larger community and conception of the nation. And it also allows um, a more inclusive discourse than you're seeing currently in the United Kingdom or the United States. And so that, combined with the immigration system, combined with citizenship, provides what I would call positive feedback loop. So now that you have all of these immigrants who are citizens, their children who are citizens, there's a language of multiculturalism. When there is a moment when there is problems, when maybe nativism can rise, or if there's a challenge to this system, people can use politics to protest. They can use politics to cast a vote for somebody who um, stakes out ground that is more inclusive. And I think it's a political system that has actually managed to stay much more in the center than many other advanced democracies. Irene, Canadians are always a bit preoccupied with how we're seen abroad. You're a Canadian originally, but you worked in California for many years. In the era of Donald Trump, in the post-Brexit environment in, in Europe, is the kind of research you've done into Canadian exceptionalism, the kind of policies you've talked about here, are you finding it, it's, it's gaining, are, are, are more of your colleagues in outside Canada interested in it now than there were a few years ago? Unfortunately, uh, not. And, and, and I would say maybe academics are interested in it, but we're in a current political moment where people find the Canadian case very interesting. They, they, they find it confusing. They don't understand why Canada hasn't followed in the footsteps of France with its Front National. They don't understand why um, Canada isn't taking this nativist turn. But they assume that there are no lessons to be learned from Canada because it's a very unique situation. And to the extent that people sometimes think that Canadian po policy can be replicated, they only focus on the point system. So the argument is that if we only selected uh, sort of the best and the brightest, then all of our problems would disappear and immigration would be a huge success. Where would you think Canadians should be concerned about their system more? Where, where are there obvious places where there could be improvements? One, I think, is on the tendency over the last 10 years for Canada to bring in more and more temporary workers. Um, Temporary worker visas raise a number of, of distinct problems. One of them is if someone comes in and works in Canada for two or three years, starts to get settled, maybe falls in love, uh, builds a family, um, starts to feel at home in Canada, and then you tell that person, oh, your visa is over, now you have to go back home. Some of those people will not go home. Some of the people will stay. And we know that this happened in the United States right after World War II. There was something called the Bracero Program that brought in Mexican guest workers to work in agriculture and in the railways. And when that program was ended in the 1960s, uh, both the employers, the people who hired them, and the people who were working there, uh, they wanted to continue that relationship, and that started uh, the undocumented uh, migrant population in the United States and, and Germany and other European countries.
countries faced very similar issues when they brought in temporary guest workers and then in the 1970s when they wanted those guest workers to go home when economic times weren't as good, many people stayed. And I worry that if we bring in temporary workers and then they overstay their visas, there will be a significant undocumented population, which is a problem for that group. They are subject to exploitation. They have to live in the shadows of Canadian society. But it also might shift Canadian opinion because it's harder for people to feel confidence in a system if the system is perceived to be not working. That was Professor Irene Bloomrad with the University of California at Berkeley in conversation with McLean's Ottawa Bureau Chief John Geddes. They were at the McGill Institute for the Study of Canada in Montreal. Coming up after the break, Rana Ambrose discusses her role as interim conservative leader and Shannon Proudfoot brings us this week's Ottawa Power Rankings. Welcome back to McLean's on the Hill. I'm Cormac McSweeney, Parliament Hill Bureau Chief for City News and Rogers Radio. Ever since the last election in 2015, the Conservative Party of Canada has been stuck in a sort of soul-searching mode. They lost their leader, Stephen Harper, who stepped down after the vote. They've been trying to stay relevant in the eyes of Canadian voters, and they've been searching for a new path forward in the Conservative leadership race. That race, at times, has brought them some controversial headlines. The person who's been trying to keep the party together and headed down the right path has been interim leader Rana Ambrose. Recently, McLean's associate editor Shannon Proudfoot was able to sit down with Miss Ambrose to chat about her job as interim leader, why she doesn't want to run for the full leadership position, and some of the issues that have popped up recently on the campaign trail. Shannon, tell us more about your discussions with Miss Ambrose. She's in a very unique position. You keep seeing this, these sort of wishful uh, opinion pieces or, or things pop up within the party again and again. People saying that she would be a terrific candidate for permanent leadership, but because of the rules of the party itself, um, with her in the position of interim leader, she is automatically discounted. So I was basically initially interested in asking her why she chose to be interim leader, knowing that it took her out of the running for permanent leadership. Um, so we talked about that a bit. She, she said that she sees the interim leader position as a really pivotal and important one. She doesn't see it as a placeholder at all um, because of the sort of existential crisis that her party is in right now, or maybe not existential crisis, but the search for identity in a new direction. Um, and you do see a lot of people again and again. There was a draft Rana movement at the uh, Conservative Convention in Vancouver last spring, and then uh, you'll see these columns uh, periodically pop up, sort of this wistful kind of if only, because I think she's seen as a leader who could really kind of compete with Justin Trudeau on his own terms in a way. In the next election. She's, you know, she's younger, she's of a new generation of political leader. She's seen as taking the party in a, in a bit of a more progressive direction. She has deliberately, uh, and she, we talked a bit about this, reset the tone of her party. She thought it, that they heard loud and clear from Canadians that they didn't really like the angry edge to the party. And so she's tried to make it uh, 
tough but more respectful. Um, and so we, we also talked, and I, I should add that I talked to her last week, so that's the, sort of the time frame of all this. I talked to her right after uh, the shootings in Quebec City that left six dead at a mosque, and I asked her what she thought about people who were sort of saying that there's this general climate of intolerance and kind of ugliness uh, that could be partially blamed, and specifically as it relates to the Conservative leadership campaign, which has been divisive at times. Um, and, and she basically said she just doesn't see that in Canada. I don't think Canadians want that, I, I think is what I mean. I think that's not something I think Canadians think. You know, I, I, I just, I, I, I see Canadians as much more open, optimistic. We have a great country. We have room for people. You know, we, we just don't have the same kinds of tensions, I don't think. Mm -hmm. Now, if something happens like happened in Quebec, I think we have to remind ourselves that this is not... You know, words matter, actions matter, but, you know, Quebec as a society is an open, like, an open society. It's an open, peaceful, welcoming society that prides itself on being a safe place. Um, this, this is the actions of, of a person, um, and we have to remember that. Uh, but we, so. Mm -hmm. Well, in the context of the, the permanent leadership race now, uh, do you have concerns then about, say, Kelly Leach's campaign, about the direction of that and what it could mean for the party? Well, look, for myself as the interim leader, um, it's really important to me uh, that I stay neutral. And, and you know, one of the, the advantages of having our first leadership race in 10 years is that every Canadian, whether they're a party member or not, can weigh in on these things. Mm -hmm. So there's lots of opportunity for feedback. Um, for any of these ideas that come out. Um, and I think, you know, at the end of the day, our members will make, they'll make the decision. Um, and so uh, I'm going to leave that over here. So Shannon, Ambrose is not directly commenting on Kelly Leach's campaign, but Leach has been the person to have grabbed uh, a lot of headlines in this sort of divisive and controversial uh, policy stance around this issue. Yeah, of course. That's sort of been the territory Kelly Leach has tried to, to stake out, um, but but Ron Ambrose is being very careful to not say anything about it. Um, the one thing I did think that was interesting is when I sort of asked her whether she had concerns about this, she talked about how any new ideas that come into the party are going to have to be uh, run through the grassroots that that person will have to earn their stripes as party leader and pass it through the members, first of all. And so it almost seemed to me like she was indicating this is a self-limiting issue, that if someone comes to the table with, with proposals as a leadership candidate that are not going to fly with a large portion of the party, it's kind of going to stop there. The ideas that people have, um, they're new ones. Uh, first of all, the person has to be elected the leader, and second, they have to run them through the grassroots members. Mm -hmm. Nothing happens in our party unless the grassroots approve it. So I just I have a lot of faith in the people in our party that I have seen at convention after convention come back with good ideas, you know, compassionate policies, common sense, and they're the ones that are going to weigh in on these. Right. So I, I have... People are going to have different ideas, some of them controversial. They're, you know, this is a part of a race, part of trying to get attention, part of trying to create a buzz around yourself. That's part, it happens with every leadership race, and it's just normal and natural. But at the end of the day, I have a lot of faith in the good people of our party. I really do. All right, so Shannon, uh, this is a perfect segue because we can now move on to the Ottawa power rankings. And Rana Ambrose is in your power rankings for this week. So 
for those listeners who haven't heard this before, this is when Shannon Proudfoot takes a look at the week in Canadian politics, and she lets us know who had a great week and who had a bad week. So, Shannon, let's start off with the good stuff. Who had a good week in politics? Yeah, so leading off the good week is Krista Freeland, the foreign affairs minister. She was in Washington this week to meet with top congressional leaders. Um, and that's sort of setting the stage for the prime minister to meet with uh, President Donald Trump on Monday. Um, and as sort of expected, uh, Freeland was was apparently sent to this job to, to talk tough and to, to really stand up for Canada. And that was indeed exactly what she came out of those meetings in D.C. saying. Second on having a good week list is Nathan Cullen. He's the NDP's Democratic reform critic. Um, and, and since the middle of last week and into this week with the government abandoning their, their promises on electoral reform, Cullen has really become the kind of furious face of the resistance to that decision. He's been very outspoken about it um, and has really gotten a lot of mileage out of critiquing this decision as something he, he appears to care a lot about. Um, currently, a petition that he has sponsored, which demands that the government recommit to electoral reform, has gathered nearly 100 thousand signatures so it's something that seems to be gaining a bit of steam although it remains to be seen what impact that may actually have third on the good week list is Ottawa's diplomatic scene and this is based almost exclusively on a deliciously unsubstantiated rumor that as far as I can tell is based only on the fact that President Trump's uh, press secretary Sean Spicer would not directly contradict the rumor that Sarah Palin is being considered as US ambassador to Canada and would therefore be taking up the most visible and prestigious diplomatic post in Ottawa. And you can sort of feel people in Ottawa tapping their fingertips together and cackling about how entertaining and bizarre and surreal this would be. So uh, it really does remain to be seen whether that is tethered to reality in any way, but it's a really kind of fun storyline to entertain in these dark, weird days. And uh, it, it ties directly with Nathan Cullen because he was also out uh, criticizing that possibility heavily before it's even become a reality, if it does become a reality, saying it would be uh, not a reality show for Canada, but a disaster, a complete disaster. So he was highly critical. But I didn't hear you say Ronna Ambrose on the good list, so it appears she will be on your bad list this week. So um, let us know who made that list. Indeed, yes. Kelly Leach is heading up the Had a Bad Week list again. I don't even know how many weeks running this is that she's appeared. Um, it, it sort of seems like what was giving her a lot of attention and oxygen earlier in the race is curdling a bit. You even saw the Prime Minister take a, what frankly registered as a bit of a cheap shot against her um, in in defending his uh, abandonment of the electoral reform promise, he sort of took a cheap shot and said to someone, uh, do you want Kelly Leach to have her own party? And then you have Peter McKay, the former progressive conservative leader, who sort of emerged from obscurity and made some rare comments about the conservative leadership race and said that he, he thought her proposals would be bad for the conservative brand, which is a pretty hefty indictment. Number two on the having a bad week list is uh, Finance Minister Bill Morneau. So it, it emerged in a story this week that he had in his hands in mid-October a long-term fiscal projection that showed Ottawa would be in the red for decades longer than the government had had promised. Uh, but in the way these sometimes things sometimes go, that not-so-good news somehow failed to make it into his economic update that was provided two weeks later. Funny how that happens. Yeah, and it <laughs> happened in the very obvious way these things sometimes do, which is that that um, it was quietly put out in, you know, in public technically on the web, but with no press release on December 23rd, when you can imagine everyone was already sort of checked out for the holidays. So um, that's kind of a tried and true tactic in Ottawa, no matter who the government is. Number third on the having a bad week list, unfortunately, is Rana Ambrose. Um, it also emerged this week and she's facing some uncomfortable uh 
questions about her own kind of luxurious holiday vacation. It turns out she spent some time in January on the yacht uh, of energy titan Murray Edwards, who is a friend of her spouse. And the reason this has gotten kind of awkward is, of course, the Conservatives were making hay for weeks on end following uh, New Year's about Justin Trudeau's fancy uh, holiday vacation with the Aga Khan. And, and so Rana, Ron Ambers now appears to be facing a few questions of ethics along similar lines. And the other thing is it has completely taken the wind out of the sails. Her party has not mentioned boo about the Prime Minister's luxurious vacation because they just don't really have a leg to stand on there anymore. So it's kind of taken this convenient line of questioning away from them. Definitely has changed the tone in the House of Commons, that's for sure. Uh, Shannon Proudfoot, thank you so much for joining us. If you want to check out uh, Shannon's Ottawa Power Rankings or her piece on Ronna Ambrose as the interim leader, head to mcleans.ca. That's it for this week's episode. For more of your politics and power, join us next week on The Hill.